You're now listening to the Tax Smart REI podcast, your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to this episode of the Tax Smart REI Podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk about retirement accounts and some other accounts you'll need to know about, uh, contributions, year-end deadlines, as well as the philosophy of retirement accounts and should you even be using these in the first place. So we're going to go ahead and get started with the philosophy, then we'll dive into uh, those contribution limits and those deadlines that you'll need to know around year-end. So let's go ahead and dive right in. Yeah, the philosophy piece is really important because I think a lot of real estate investors like control. Maybe it's ego. I don't know. But we definitely, we and this is we, I'm part of this group too. We like control over our investments and over our money. So the theory is that I can buy a rental property and I have full control over the performance of that rental property, which can be a good thing. It can also not be a good thing, right? It can be a bad thing if you're not a very good operator or if you buy way above what you should have paid. Uh, you know, if you overpay for a property, that can be a problem too. If you're not very good at negotiating with tenants, that could be a problem too. So having full control can be great, can also be bad. Now, I also want to say, before I start asking you questions, because I know you have slightly different philosophy, this is just where being in this business for a while, this is what I have seen. Everybody wants control. So they start pulling their money out of equities, out of the stock market to invest in real estate because they think they have more control. And a lot of people do well, especially over the past like you know eight years. A lot of people have done well. The but the question's going to be over the next like two years: yeah. is having all that control good or is it bad? Can you make it through a potential recession if the market's not pushing up rents and pushing up prices on a consistent basis? How well are you executing at that point? Because when the market's screaming. Everybody can do well, but when it, there's the um, it's the difference between like a peacetime general and a wartime general. I, I use that every once in a while at the firm. I, I say I tell my leaders, it's great that you're the nice guy and and it's so easy to lead in peacetime. But when it's wartime, how are you going to lead your team? And the same sort of principles apply. You need to be prepared to be a wartime landlord. Maybe that's a bad way to put it, but the the economy is rocky right now. So this control piece, we might start seeing instances where it was better to leave money in the market in equities rather than pulling it out and running your own real estate portfolio. So it'll be kind of interesting, kind of interesting to see how it plays out. But people want control. And I know that you have a little bit of, of a different philosophy. You think that you should be well diversified. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So, you know, I, I like control too. Don't get me wrong. But like you were saying, over the last 10 years, the market carried a lot of people. And now it's going to be determined, are you a good operator? And there's a number just because of these human error that you can make, right? In your business, you can easily make a decision or a series of decisions through somewhere, anywhere throughout your investing career, right? That can wipe you out or significantly damage, you know, your wealth, right? Simply reduce your wealth. So I kind of believe in having certain amount of money, a certain portion of allocation to stocks, specifically indexes, broad indexes, because if you use the dollar cost average strategy you hold for the long term, the market has historically, depending on which time horizon you look at, 
depending on what reports you look at, all that stuff, when any uh, basically earn the S and P five hundred anywhere between eight to eleven percent annually, right? And that's if you just dollar cost averaged in, did nothing, and that's all you did, right? And the thing is, when you're investing in like a broad index like the S and P five hundred, you have you know publicly traded companies with top management, right? Managing these companies, you don't have to think about it. And yeah, there's going to be bad actors in that portfolio of five hundred every once in a while that might go to zero. But over the aggregate, again, that's going to earn you anywhere between eight and eleven percent per year moving forward for just doing nothing. So all you have to do is nothing. So I look at it as an insurance policy. I look at stocks and index funds as an insurance policy because. I know that put the money in there and at the worst case, I'm going to get like somewhere between eight and 11% return annually. And sure. Can you make more money in real estate? Yeah. In an up market, if it's just bull bull and you're just not out to do anything, right? It's just charging forward. But if you're not a good operator or you take your eye off the ball, you could again, lose everything. So I look at that, like say 20% of my portfolio as an insurance policy against any bad decisions that I can make. Then the rest of my portfolio, I'm either going to be investing actively in where I'm the operator or I'm investing passively with other operators. But again, all of those things carry risk, right? A lot more risk than just investing in the market. So that's my philosophy on it. If you're listening to this and you're like, oh, I keep my eye on the ball, we're going to run a real quick test. If you are the person that looks at your bank account or looks at a property management statement that just kind of shows rents, but you don't have good bookkeeping financials on a monthly basis, right? So you're not actually doing any sort of accounting or you don't have a team that's doing the accounting for you. And I don't mean just the property level accounting. I mean, we're factoring in our mortgage, our insurance, our property taxes, anything at above the property level, right? So if you're just looking at your bank account once a month or once every couple months, you're going to have to tighten that up. Yeah. Because in a down market, that's not, that is the, that's taking your eye off the ball. If you want to run really tight operations, you need those transactions booked throughout the month in an accounting platform, ideally like QuickBooks Online or something similar. And you want financial reports at the end and you want to start tracking trends because then that enables you to have better conversations with your property managers and and come up with strategy on an ongoing basis or pivot if you need to. And and I'm guilty of this. Last year, 2021, that's all I did. I, well, really, even before that too, I would just look at my bank account and I would know, hey, my bank account's going up. Cool. I'm making money. If it's going down, maybe I'll start digging into it. And that is fine in an up market, right? Because my, my properties are appreciating. Uh, it's going to cash flow relatively well. So no big deal. But in a in a market that goes sideways or down, you really got to tighten that up. And that's what I've been doing with my own portfolio is really starting to do the accounting on a monthly basis and get real financial reports and start tracking trends so that I can start having better communications with my property managers, with the contractors. I can start thinking about what sort of repairs and what sort of capex I want to put into the property and when I want to put that in the property based on the trends that I'm seeing. So that's like the litmus test. If you're just kind of passively checking your bank account, and going, oh, wow, man, I invest in real estate. This is so much fun. You're the one that's going to be hurting in a sideways market or a down market. So start now, get ahead of it now. And I know I'm talking about accounting and I know that we offer accounting and it might seem self-serving, but um, it's really important. It's really important to track every single penny. And if you're not tracking every single penny, then you are going to lose if the economy turns south. Um, so if you're not going to track every single penny, then you should definitely be looking to diversify. 
right? Right. Absolutely be looking to diversify because what it means is you're just not, you either don't have time or you don't have the desire to operate, right? And the people that don't have time or desire to operate are the people that will get burned when the market turns south. Right. Um, if you don't know how to structure a team, if you don't know how to utilize capital efficiently, you will get burned when the market turns south. And that is the downside of having control. Right. Nobody else is there to hold you accountable to streamline and efficient and effective operations. No, 100%. And also, I just kind of want to contrast that too. Even if you're investing as an LP, right? Like even if you're investing as a limited partner and you're picking sponsors, right? You know, there's still a tremendous amount. Like it, sometimes it's about risk, right? It's about operations. So if you're going to be running the show, you need to have the time and, you know, the desire, like Brandon said, to to actually run your your portfolio like a business to make sure it's operating efficiently, all that. And there's risk in that. And there's human error in your own capability of doing that, right? So it's more risky to do that than it is to put the money in the S&P 500, to be quite honest with you, and just do nothing. So you need to be able to be a good operator if you're going to go that route. If you're going to go the LP route, then you're picking sponsors and you're picking opportunities and hoping they perform well. And these aren't publicly traded companies. There's not as strict reporting guidelines and all that stuff there. They have exemptions to the SEC rules, right? So there's more risk in that. Yeah, there's there's opportunity for higher return, but you can make an error in your decision making when picking a sponsor. These sponsors can make errors, right? So there's a possibility. The sponsors can make errors. People think that sponsors can't make errors, but... Holy smokes, we have seen some wacky sponsors come through at our time here at the firm. I mean, you've got to be really careful picking sponsors. Yeah. <laughs> you've got to be really careful picking sponsors. Right. And, and I'm sorry to cut you off, but I just like this is just so important to me because the sponsors that have spun up in the last eight years have not gone through a recession. Yeah. So you have to take that into account. Like you can't, you can't just go all in on a sponsor thinking that this is going to be great. Like if you look back over the last three years and they've done so well for you, that's great. But what happens again when it goes sideways or down? I can't tell you how many sponsors we've had come to us that say, my budget, my budget for tax and accounting is $2,000. And we're like, what, you mean a month? <laughs> no, no, for the year, $2,000 for the year. So this, these are sponsors that are raising millions of dollars and they're they're going to spend $2000 on tax and accounting for the entire year and they're they're getting them from some courses or something you know they're like these courses tell you what to budget for all this stuff so using some percentage i, I don't know how they come up with it but um you know we just are like holy smokes man you're going to you're going to lose people money cuz you're not taking this seriously it's not a serious business for you so you got to be careful picking those sponsors you really do especially now going into a potentially sideways or down market yeah, not going to go too much into a rabbit hole and picking sponsors, <laughs> but right now I'm evaluating a lot of sponsors and, you know, to Brandon's point, it's really hard to tell over the last 10 years. So what I'm looking at is the sponsors that have been around for 20, 30 years, right? You know, how have they performed throughout the years? And I'm also looking at sponsors who maybe got into the game over the last 10 years, but have a long track record of of investing themselves prior to getting to the game that they can leverage. So they might have seen it, maybe not on the syndication side, but they've seen it in their own investing experience. So you really got to be careful. You got to look at at that track record because there's so many sponsors that got spat out of all of these um, like coaching groups and they all look the same. They sound the same. You hop on a phone call with a sponsor and they basically tell you the same thing to the point where it's like, I don't know if I'm talking to this guy or that person. It doesn't matter. They're all saying the same thing. So really be careful. But the point is, the point in all this is there's risk in not only your selection of the sponsor, but there's risk in the sponsor not executing. And I mean, you've got the, the, the problem with the last five years or so, maybe a little bit more is, is twofold, right? One, 
it seems like everybody's making money in real estate. So everybody's, everybody wants to pour money into real estate. So there's tons of capital available. But two, you've got social media, right? So you, you're seeing like Grant Cardone and all these people posting on Instagram and being on all these podcasts and just talking about how amazingly successful they are. But sometimes they're not. <laughs> sometimes they're either not successful or sometimes they're like uh, like that one guy uh, this this month or last month that was indicted for fraud. He was a sponsor, like bank fraud, I think, is wire fraud. Matt, Matt. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know who he's. I just, I've, I've heard of it, but I mean, this isn't the first. Yeah, time well, and he, but but the thing is, is like he was on. He did the bigger pocket circuit, and, and nothing against bigger pockets. You can't. I, I know. I saw like a lot of people were saying, "Oh, bigger pockets should do better vetting of of podcast guests." But like the reality is, and I mean, we can speak to it too. Yeah. When you have somebody on, you look through, you try to make sure that it passes the smell test, right? You don't want to like obviously bring on a, a blatant fraud. But you don't really know. Like, it's not like we're saying, oh, well, open up your books books. and let's check your internal (laughs) controls. Yeah, you can't do that to get people on a podcast. But I think, like, the other thing, too, is that whenever they are on a podcast, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're engaging in fraud at that time. So that's what it makes it really difficult. So, I point is don't blame bigger pockets. It's not their fault. But yeah, that guy was on the bigger pockets podcast, has this big Instagram following, like, just social media guy, right? And I just think that you got to be careful, you know investing with influencers you just got to be care- not not say that they're wrong or bad you just got to be careful and, and like the people that spun up sponsors like the gps that started the last five years again they're not wrong and they're not bad necessarily you just got to be careful yeah. right so tom just said he's looking for sponsors that have been around for 20 30 years it doesn't mean that if a gp started last month that they shouldn't be investing you shouldn't be investing with them it just means you got to do more due diligence right and you got to have a higher risk tolerance if you're going to invest in them because the reality is they're taking their first or second swing at this and you could use this higher risk tolerance right and there's just more risk involved um so that's again the entire reason why i'm saying my philosophies have some of it towards the market because i view the s p 500 yes there's volatility i look at the reality is the s p 500 is not going to zero if it goes to zero yeah. and you lose all your money then there's going to be, you know, world wars. It's over. Yeah. yeah. The know. world is gone. Yeah. Yeah. We we have not survived. If the yeah. S&P is at zero, uh, we're toast. Yeah. So so whenever I do my calculations. You're, you're, I, we're, we're marching and we're like, you know, I don't know. We're, 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 yeah. we're, we're not doing this podcast anymore. We're, we're going to be yeah. over fighting yeah. some war. Right. And that's the reality <laughs> situation. So I look at the S&P 500 in my own philosophy, and I'm not saying everybody's philosophy, but in mine as the risk-free rate of return. Right. That's my risk-free. That's the hurdle rate that all these other investments have to overcome. Sorry, I've got a question for you real quick. So if we kind of get back to the S&P versus real estate and everything, how would you advise somebody that has 90% of their net worth in real estate? What would you tell them to do? Say the next, the other 10% is in cash. So I, I would say over let's, time. Let's I, say, let's just say for the, for just to further this, that they they started investing after 2008, 2009. All right, so they haven't been through a yeah. major crash. And let's also assume that they're a mediocre operator. So they're not amazing. Yeah. They don't have everything dialed in, but they're not like they're not just treating it as just they're paying attention. They're just not dialed in, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. I, I mean, long story short, I'm gonna I would advise that you start allocating some capital start allocating capital to like um broad index funds, right? Like the S P five hundred or the total stock market. How to actually get there. And that's a whole other story, right? Like how you're gonna get the funds, right? Because you have 10% in cash and maybe you need that 10% in cash 
to you know make sure you have the working capital for your portfolio, right? They have ninety percent locked in an illiquid asset such as real estate. So how can you tap into that? You could either tap into that through cash out refinances or HELOCs, or you could sell, right? And Would you do a cash out refinance though? Because that that's going to add debt to your real estate position. Yeah. I, I don't know that I would do that. I would probably look to sell maybe a part of the portfolio, maybe. And that's going to depend on your market. And, you know, can you get the price you're looking to get right now? I know it's tough out there. Inventory sitting out there longer. People are putting in low ball offers, waiting for prices to come down, waiting for basically sellers to capitulate and say, okay, this isn't the 2020, 2021 market where everything's running up. So the sell side might be tough right now. So, you know, it would depend on everybody on the individual circumstance, but I'd be looking at say, hey, can you sell a portion of your portfolio, hopefully in a tax efficient manner to move some of that capital you have tied up in real estate into the stock market? And right now is not actually a bad time, probably. I'm not saying it's the best time, but probably not a bad time to start building a position because the market is still down. I think last I checked, like 15, 20% year to date. And, you know, people argue that the market's still overvalued and maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But the reality is it's still down 20% or 15, 20% from where it was at the top. So mm. now it's not the worst time to allocate capital to the stock market and start building that portfolio. So that's what I'd recommend. I would say, okay, you have 90% in real estate. How can we get maybe somewhere between 10 to 20% of that into stocks, right? That would be the question. So, so you're going to you're gonna want to see somebody get 10 to 20% of their total net worth into stocks over what time horizon? It, it's going to be dependent on how much and how quickly they can liquidate their portfolio. Because that's, that's what, the other thing I was thinking too, is like you could theoretically use the cash flow from the rentals and then also your job, if you have a job or business, to build a position as well. You don't necessarily have to liquidate your portfolio. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You could dollar cost. If you have the liquid cash flow, if you have the discretionary income or you have the income that you can allocate there, either, like you said, from your job or from your cash flow, I assume most real estate investors don't cash flow because that seems to be the, the trends of almost everybody I talk to. It's like, yeah, you know, appreciation is great, but can't cash flow. So anyway, mm -hmm. but assuming you are cash flowing, sure, you could put the money from the cash flow into the market, just not an IRA or, or a 401k because it's not earned income, right? The cash flow from rental real estate. Um, however, if you have a job or you run another business where you're actively involved, then at that point, you can generally contribute to a retirement account you want to, or you can just build a brokerage account. But that's a good and What point. if this person tells you, well, I, I want cash because the market is kind of sliding. It's, it's off of its highs. And I think there's going to be some opportunities that come up over the coming months that I want cash to take advantage of. Do you still tell that person, hey, look, I understand that, but you really need to be getting some diversification that. here? And if you do, why? What? Why Why is it important to get that diversification? Yeah, so I, I would say this. It's say It comes down to, this is a big question to ask. If I was actually going to help someone with this, I want to let everybody know, I would comb through a lot of your data, ask you a ton of questions before I made any recommendations, all right? But for the sake of this conversation, I would say, like, how, how much is your discretionary income, right? Whatever that number is. Just say it's $2,000 a month. I'm just pulling a number out of a hat. Well, I'd say, well, why don't we take a portion of that and and commit to dollar cost averaging that into the market, starting to build this position? Because again, the market is off the high. It could still go lower, but this is why we're dollar cost averaging in. Because the do entire dollar cost average in strategy is as the market goes lower, you're reducing your cost basis, you know, your overall cost basis in the asset. So in the S&P 500 index fund, for example. Because you're buying more. Because right? you're buying more. Because you can Right. So, so if you buy... One share at 100 and one share at 50, 
then your two shares average cost basis is $75. Right. So you, you've essentially like taken that $90 cost basis and dropped it 20 or that $100 cost basis dropped to 25 bucks. Right. So that's the purpose. And like long story short, you could run like charts on this and graphs for days. And basically the long story short is when you do it over time, you come out ahead because of the dollar cost averaging strategy. The market rises over decades and you should always be dollar cost averaging it is the bottom line. I do that. So a portion of my money gets dollar cost averaging in rain, shine. I don't care if the market's soaring or not soaring, it's going in because it's a, you're, you're disciplined. You're using that strategy. I say commit to that. Then put the rest of your money Right now, you know, interest rates in savings accounts or CDs are all right. Some people are recommending putting them in short-term treasuries um, that are like a running 4%. Uh, so you, you you buy a three-month treasury and hold it to maturity, theoretically. And that's kind of a way you can earn a little bit more on your, on your cash while it's sitting there. So that's probably what I'd recommend. Hold a portion in cash, build your cash portion of it, and then but continue to dollar cost average a portion of that discretionary income I mentioned before into the market. And that's the commitment uh, in perpetuity, effectively. Love it. Well, thank you very much for uh, for helping us think through that. Tom is a CFP, so which is a certified financial planner. And I don't know. Do you have to put any disclosures up? Like he's yeah, he's a financial, financial planner, but not your financial planner. <laughs> yeah, this, yeah. I'm I'm a financial planner. This is general information and for informational purposes only. It's not financial advice. You know, we're, we're talking in broad generalities here. If you want, you know, go speak to your own financial planner to get the most appropriate advice for your specific situation, because there's a lot of factors to consider in a financial situation besides just your income or your allocation. There's a lot more stuff that goes into it. And there's no possible way that we can go through everything here on this podcast today. So before you make any major financial decisions or shifts in your investment strategy, go run it by your own financial advisor and make sure it makes sense for you. Now that we got the philosophy, why well, do I have one more thing into the philosophy? One more thing. A lot of people ask, well, should I invest in a self-directed IRA or self-directed retirement account? This happens all the time we get this question. And my personal philosophy on it is, it depends. So it depends on on basically two things. So what is your current allocation of capital right now? If you have all of your money or the majority of your investable assets in retirement accounts and it's all in the stock market and you're like, oh my God, I don't want it all in the stock market. I would rather see most people self-direct a retirement account and get exposure to a syndication or whatever um, they want to invest in through a self-directed retirement account rather than have them liquidate their retirement accounts and be exposed to income taxes and penalties. I've seen people try to liquidate their account where they'd be paying 40 to 50% of the account balance just to get the money out. You know how much your returns you'd have to earn to get that back? A lot. I don't know the exact answer, but a lot. So I'd rather see people self-direct if the majority of their assets are in retirement accounts and they want that diversification out of stocks, right? However, if you don't have all your money in investable assets in IRAs, I would prefer to see people have stocks and index funds, et cetera, in their IRAs, in their uh, retirement accounts, because it's tax sheltered, right? <laughs> you, it's very hard to shelter capital gains from the sale of stocks and dividends from tax outside of a retirement account, right? But it's easy to shelter rental income and gains in the sale of rental property outside of retirement accounts. So I'd prefer to see people invest cash outside of retirement accounts in real estate um, where they can get it tax sheltered and stocks in their retirement accounts where they can get it sheltered. So that's kind of my philosophy there. A lot of people always ask that. So there you have it. Um, but now we're going to kind of move into some of the more boring stuff in a sense, but it's fun. Everybody needs to know this stuff if you're going to be considering making contributions to retirement accounts. So let's just start with the Roth IRA, right? So kind of give everybody a brief 
rundown or what a Roth IRA is. Roth IRA is an account that you make post-tax contributions to. Post-tax meaning you've already paid tax on it and meaning it's not deductible. You're not getting a deduction for making this contribution. So you make the contribution to the Roth account. It will grow tax-free within the Roth account. So you put $10,000 in, you invest it in whatever, it grows $15,000. Well, guess what? That $5,000 grows tax-free. You're not paying tax on it. Now, when you pull the money out in retirement, 59 and a half is the current age, it's also tax-free when you when you pull it out. So you don't have to pay tax on it when it comes out. Now, there's also something called an RMD, required minimum distribution. So most retirement accounts, when you get to a certain age, things like 72 and a half, you have to start pulling out the money. They force you to do it. Otherwise, there's a, a, a heavy tax penalties if you don't. So you, Roth IRAs are not subject to RMDs. So you don't have to pull the money out in retirement if you don't want to. So a lot of tax advantages of doing that. So Roth IRA, if you can make contributions, whether it be directly to the account or through a backdoor Roth, really a no-brainer um, in my opinion. And the deadlines to make a contribution, the good news is you have it up until April 18th, if you're an individual, only individuals can make the account. So I guess that's it. <laughs> April 18th, 2023 to make the contribution to a, a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA. And um, the account can be opened after your end. Last thing on Roth IRAs, if uh, you're looking to make contributions to these accounts, you can make up to a $6,000 contribution if you're under the age of 50 or a $7,000 contribution if you're 50 or older. Now, there are some income limits. If you're looking to make a contribution directly to a Roth IRA account without having to do a backdoor, and I'll touch on a backdoor in a second, um, you're going to have to earn under $129,000 if you're single or ahead of household. And there is a phase out for from $129,000 to $144,000 per year where you can make a partial contribution to the Roth, but not the full $6,000. Additionally, uh, if you're married filing jointly, you're going to have to earn under $204,000 to make that contribution. And there's a phase out between $204,000 to $214,000 uh, if you're looking to make that Roth account. Now, if you're above these income limits and you're unable to make a Roth contribution directly to the Roth account, the good news is there's something called a backdoor Roth IRA. Backdoor Roth IRA allows you to make contributions to a traditional IRA, generally post-tax. So you'll be above those limits as well. Uh, and then roll it over into a Roth IRA. Um, so uh, it is still possible for you to make those Roth IRA contributions. Now, there are some things you do want to be aware of. If you are considering a Roth, something you'll want to speak to your financial planners and tax advisors about uh, before making a Roth contribution, if you already have a traditional IRA that has account that has a balance. Um, and that is the IRA aggregation rule under section 408D2. And basically what that says is that if you have IRA accounts or you have multiple IRA accounts and you don't roll over the entire balance all at once, basically what happens is you're going to have a proration between the pre-tax dollars that were contributed to your traditional IRA and the post-tax dollars that were contributed. And so to kind of give an example, if you had an IRA account with $100,000 in it and you made a $5,500 backdoor Roth IRA contribution, only about five, roughly 5% of that rollover would be considered after tax and the remainder would be considered pre-tax if held in the IRA. So just a little complicated, not going to flesh it all out here today on the podcast. Just know that if you have an existing traditional IRA where you're making pre-tax contributions, so at some point you're making pre-tax contributions uh, that were tax deductible to your traditional IRA, and now you're looking to roll it over to a Roth IRA, 
there might be some additional tax planning measures you need to take to make sure you're you're maximizing or the efficiency of that rollover. So just something to keep in mind. Now we're kind of just going to move on to traditional IRAs. So traditional IRA, basically what a traditional IRA is, allows you to contribute the same amount as a Roth. So 6,000 if you're under age 50, up to 7,000 if you're 50 or older. So the contributions to a traditional IRA are made, are traditionally made uh, pre-tax, meaning they're tax deductible, um, but they are subject to some income limits, right? So you can make these pre-tax or these deductible uh, contributions when you're married, uh, excuse me, when you're single and your income is $68,000 or less, and you are covered by a workplace plan, meaning you have a 401k or another retirement account at work. Um, it's going to be 109000 if you're married filing jointly. And there's phase-ins here. So if you're single, you can make a partial pre-tax contribution between $68,000 $78,000 in income. If you're married, it's one hundred nine dollars to $129,000. Basically, again, what this means is you can't make that full $6,000 contribution pre-tax, you can make a partial contribution if within those limits. And again, that's for people who are covered, also covered by a workplace plan. If you're not covered by a workplace plan, meaning your business or your job does not offer you contributions, um, basically what ends up happening, it does not offer you like a 401k or another type of retirement account, then there are no income limits, meaning you can always make the contribution to your traditional account pre-tax. The income limits on the pre-tax income limits only apply when your workplace has a retirement plan. All right. So next, we're going to cover 401ks. There's a lot of other types of retirement accounts that you can get through your through an employer 457s. There's a 403bs. Uh, there's other ones. There's a lot of other ones, but we're only going to cover the 401k today. So 401k is traditionally provided by an employer, or maybe you have a self-directed if you're self-employed, but they allow you to contribute up to $20,500 if you're under the age 50, and an additional $6,500 if you're over the age 50 for a total of $27,000, again, if you're over the age 50. Now, contributions can be made pre or post-tax, so either it's like a traditional or Roth account, Roth 401k, and unlike IRAs, there are no income limits for 401k contributions. Uh, there are no income limits to the Roth side either. So uh, that's a good thing about 401ks. Now, your employer can also make contributions to the traditional 401k account and not the Roth. Um, so combined, um, you can make a combined contribution between the employee side and the employer side of $61,000 and $67,500 if you're over the age of 50. So there's something to know about uh, uh, 401ks. Now, the good news is for traditional IRAs and Roth IRAs, the contribution deadline is going to be April 18th, 2023. So the deadline for filing individuals, not the extension deadline, but the original deadline, April 18th, 2023 for Roth and traditional IRA contributions. With 401ks, it's it's a little bit different. 401ks, you have to make the employee side of the contribution before 1231-2022, right? So all these numbers, by the way, are 2022 numbers. They are going to change for 2023. So in 2022, if you want to make an employee contribution to your 401k, you have to uh, make sure that you let your employer know you want to make that contribution before the end of the year. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to take it. As for the employer contribution, that can be contributed on your behalf up until the extension deadline. So your employer has up until, depending on what type of uh, business, how their business is structured, up to September 15th or October 15th to make that contribution on your behalf.
All right, so that's about it for today's episode. If you did enjoy what you heard, do have any questions, feel free to join our Tax Smart Investors Facebook group. There's a ton of conversations taking place in there right now. You can visit Facebook and just search for Tax Smart Investors. You'll be able to find us like that. Or you can visit www.facebook.com slash group slash Tax Smart Investors and join that way. That's all for today. And we'll catch you on the next episode of Tax Smart REI. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.